Okay, so this is our Merleau-Ponty group continuing our reading of uh, the structure of behavior. So we are picking up from page 74 of the translation, uh, which is where we got to last time. Um, so we're still on this part about the, um, uh, so the chapter is the higher forms of behavior. Um, uh, so again, we skipped chapter one, which is uh, primarily just a criticism of the reflex theory. Um, so chapter two, uh, and then we're looking in particular at this section about the supposed central sector. So this, there was this idea uh, in early 20th century physiology that there's like uh, sort of three regions of the nervous system uh, or three like components of the nervous system. Uh, there's the, the motor, uh, sorry, the sensory side sort of is the first side. So like you have inputs from the outside world that um, affect sense organs uh, and then that, that's sort of transmitted through sensory nerves to certain parts of the brain. Um, then you have the motor side, which is the output side. Um, so you have um, certain regions of the brain that are involved in controlling motor activity, um, transmit a signal down the motor nerves to um, the muscles and other uh, effectors um, and bring about some sort of um, behavior of the organism. And then sort of in between this, so this is the part that um, uh, that we're talking about now, this supposed central sector in between, there's some mysterious or like sort of not very well defined um, association area or um, an area that is not directly tied either to the input or the output end, but it does something, some sort of processing in between. Um, and so like uh, insofar as an organism is not um, just a one-to-one -one function between like this input produces this output, um, like a, a, a simple sort of a mechanical device. Um, to that extent, then then this association area has to do something, uh, some sort of manipulation on the inputs that come in. So either like classifying that, you know, inputs uh, that resemble each other in this respect produce the same output or um, uh, connecting different types of inputs to each other. Um, uh, yeah, so this is, yeah, exactly. So there's like connections, you can, you can connect this to some of uh, the Freud, um, like the the sketch of a scientific psychology, um, and, and then also in interpretation of dreams where he has these different um, uh, sort of uh, structural accounts of the psychological system, uh, like uh, input, output, and then something in between that does some sort of operations on the inputs to control what the outputs um what outputs are produced in relation to given inputs. Um, but yeah, so this middle portion is obviously much harder to um, study and uh, to explain than the other two, because like you can, um, you can, uh, you know, evaluate what sorts of inputs uh, you can, you can control what sort of um, stimulus you present to the organism uh, to evaluate like, you know, which inputs it, this organism can discriminate, can it, you know, detect these color differences or these differences in pitch uh, and so on. Uh, and then you can also observe the, the motor output. Um, you can like train rats to press a lever or pull a chain or whatever, like different sort of types of motion. Um, um, but then the middle portion is, is hidden in some respect. It, it's not um, like by definition, it's not either sensory or motor. So um, to be able to study it, you have to, you know, be a little bit more creative in type in terms of the types of uh, experimental designs that you're using. Um, and uh, yeah, so then 
the the conception that Mercoponsi is criticizing here is one that would um, try to extend the idea of localization to this um, association area uh, or this central sector of the nervous system. Uh, and so localization uh, in general just means that there's some sort of um, uh, relationship between specific regions of the brain and um, specific functions of uh, uh, behavior and um, cognition. Uh, and so like in a very general sense, of course, we know that it's not the case that every area of the brain is involved in every uh, function to the same extent. Um, um, it's not the brain is not just one sort of homogenous um, mass that is like involved as a whole in every single activity in the same way. So localization in some sense is um, obviously true. Um, but the, the question is like what what kind of localization, how much localization, um, like how are different functions localized and so on. Uh, and one sort of very simple um, form of localization would be, just be to say like every function that we can delineate in in sort of um, uh, common sense terms, like every every we can say like reading, writing, um, uh, speaking, et cetera, all these different functions that we can identify in, in sort of common sense terms, each of them would have a, a different uh, region in the brain associated with them. Um, uh, so this this is like a, a sort of very straightforward and and simplistic uh, account of localization. And there's a lot of reasons to think that this is incorrect, uh, even you know given the information that was available in uh, early 20th century uh, physiology um, and and psychology. Like uh, so, one of the instances that Mechelponti cites here is the fact that. Um, uh, People that have suffered injuries to uh, a specific region of the brain often exhibit uh, a wide variety of um, uh, pathological uh, symptoms. So like um, the, the case of S, this, this patient that was studied uh, by Galpin Goldstein, um, this person or he had um, uh, a piece of shrapnel from a, a shell. Um, he was injured in World War One, uh, so he had a piece of shrapnel in his brain. Uh, so it, it's a, a relatively localized uh, injury. Um, it's it's one specific area that was destroyed or or damaged. But his um, deficiencies are like much uh, much more wide ranging than just like uh, one function being destroyed that that would be like the function of that area. So he has like. Uh, in general, he he's unable to perform tasks that involve um, grasping a hole, uh, a structured hole. So he can like, uh, if he sort of focuses on the details of something, he can like, uh, like I don't know, maybe trace a line. If he's like, you know, paying very close attention to the the way that it, you know, curves and changes direction and so on. Um, but if you ask him like, what is the shape as a whole? What what you know, what is this line a drawing of? He's unable to answer that question. Um, uh, and and there was another patient, uh, I forget who it was who studied it, but who has sort of the opposite um, deficiency that this person is able to um, sort of get a vague uh, idea of what the whole um, situation is, but can't identify any of the details. Um, and yeah, so these they seem like opposite um, deficiencies, but uh, in some respects, they're like, complementary because in each case what is uh deficient is the precisely the capacity to grasp uh the details and the whole together at the same time as part of one sort of articulated structure um so like uh 
in our perception and people who don't have these brain injuries, um, we can uh, sort of, at, at a glance, we can recognize uh, the structure of a drawing and say, this is a triangle, this is a circle, or this is a face or whatever. Um, and we can, at the same time, sort of identify what are the key, like when you look at a, a drawing of, of a face or a photo of a face, you identify like the eyes and mouth maybe as like the key points. And then like, um, you know, one particular patch of skin, like to the left of the mouth or whatever is is a sort of secondary um, uh, portion that you don't need to focus on. So like our our perception of the face involves grasping what are the important details and what are the um, unimportant details. Like we can we can just sort of understand that at a glance. Uh, whereas someone who has these kinds of deficiencies would either just have a vague impression of like a skin color expanse or or something, uh, or they would have like a very detailed um, sort of series of perceptions of like you know one corner of the mouth, one nostril, one uh, uh, part of the eye, whatever. Um, so like each they would just see a sequence of like details and have a hard time piecing it together into a perception of a face. Um, so this this kind of structured uh, or perception of a structured whole is like one of the key concepts of this book um, that um, or or grasp more generally a grasp of a structured whole. Um, so like it's precisely this capacity to grasp a structured whole um, that that Merleau um, Ponty is going to argue overall is like um, characteristic of human behavior and and also of other animals um, uh, and something that is not un, not explicable or not um can't be expressed in this purely mechanistic way of like you know individual sensations being sort of joined together through association or something along those lines um so that's that's sort of what we've been looking at and then the last bit that we saw this um somewhat obscure idea about uh horizontal and vertical localizations um where where he talks about how um, so there are certain um, aspects of the brain uh, that correspond in a, a sort of spatially extended way to certain elements of uh, sensory or motor um, uh, sides of behavior. So, for example, like this is I, I don't think this was identified already at, at the time he's writing, but um, in in like contemporary neuroscience, there are um, what what are called retinotopic maps or topographic maps in general. Um, so, like in the visual regions of the cortex, there are um, uh, there are portions um, of of brain tissue that you can sort of map in a, a a straightforward way onto areas of the retina. So, like light uh, striking this portion of the retina brings about um, um, an excitation in this portion of the visual cortex, and then light striking a different region of the retina uh, brings about uh, another excitation in, in a different region of the cortex. And you can sort of draw a map of the retina on the visual cortex. Uh, so this is a, a sort of horizontal localization in the sense that each portion of the, um, uh, or, or sorry, each each sort of functional functionally different capacity is localized in a different um, spatially extended region of the brain. Uh, and then there's what he calls um, vertical localization which is a little bit harder to understand um but my my sort of analogy or or expl explanation of this terminology was that if we picture um if we picture the brain as if as a two-dimensional surface so we imagine sort of flattening it out into one 
sort of giant um, surface, um, you would have like in certain regions of the brain, uh, you would have not just one function in over each, like sort of on top of each uh, region of the surface, but you would have like multiple functions sort of stacked up on top of each other. Um, and so these would be these sort of mysterious association areas um, that are involved in a variety of different functions or different tasks. So um, the the patients who have an injury in some of these areas would exhibit um, deficiencies not just in one task that would be localized in that area, but a whole variety of tasks that that area is involved in. Um, and so, of course, the brain is not a two-dimensional surface. It's actually three-dimensional, but we can sort of picture this, like, um, stack of functions over each area as like an extra dimension, a fourth dimension of of uh, like a functional dimension. Um, and it's in this sense that the localization here is vertical. Um, so it's not it's not the case that each function um, uh, corresponds to a, a spatially distinct uh, region of the brain, but instead we have like a, a whole set of functions, uh, a stack of functions, um, all being uh, associated with a region um, that that is involved in uh, performing those functions. Uh, so I think that's more or less where we ended last time. Um, so yeah, if I can get a volunteer to read. So we're, I think we're just at the top of 74 where there's the, the section in small type, uh, if someone wants to read from there. I can read. Okay. H. Pierron clearly seems to agree with the other authors concerning this mixed conception of localization. Without employing this language, he describes a series of horizontal and vertical localizations which intersect in nerve functioning. He accepts the fact that touch properly so-called and depth touch, sensitivity to heat and cold, quote-unquote painful sensitivity, bone sensitivity, and finally arthromuscular sensitivity, which psychophysiological analysis dissociates and whose conductors remain distinct at the level of medullar fasciculi and way stations do not possess a distinct representation in the cortex. The cortical receptors correspond to different regions of the body and not to the different types of sensitivity. In case of lesion, these latter are affected according to the degree of their, quote, susceptibility, unquote, which amounts to saying it would seem that they do not correspond to locally distinct nerve apparatuses, but rather to so many different modes of functioning of the same substrate. Um, Likewise, while pathology permits us to dissociate sensitivity to colors, hemiochromatopsia, sensitivity to volume, hemiostereopsia, and sensitivity to light, hemiophotopsia, it confirms the fact that the occipital visual area corresponds point for point to the retina. Thus, it seems definitively impossible to assign a special center within the visual area for the seeing of color, another for the seeing of form and a third for the seeing of lights. And if following a lesion, one of the three sensitivities is electively affected, it is not because a particular region of the visual area has been put out of use. Uh, rather, it is because the lesion, depending on its severity, systematically destroys functioning beginning with its most fragile forms. With regard to language, H. Pierron accepts a series of horizontal localizations more precise than those of P. Marie, at least for the agnosias, or coordinating centers for speech, writing, and quote-unquote verbal thought movements, and within this latter, coordinating centers for words read and for those heard. 
But in each of these centers, functioning is conceived according to a double principle. On the one hand, as a mosaic functioning, on the other, as a global functioning. And from this latter point of view, the unity of cerebral physiology is reestablished across the frontiers of, quote, coordinating centers, unquote. For example, since there are pure verbal blindnesses, it is accepted that the evocation of the, quote, visual images, unquote, of words utilizes certain specialized devices, and that there is a coordinating center for this function distinct from the one which generally assures the visual evocation of absent objects. But this coordinating center is not a place in the brain where the, quote, cerebral traces, unquote, of different words would be juxtaposed while those of other visual images would be deposited in another place in the brain. And while finally, quote, perception centers, unquote, should be sought outside of these, quote, unquote, image centers. Everything demands conceiving of the physiological processes which accompany perception and mnemonic evocation as the execution on a unique ensemble of receptors of analogous melodies whose initiative is peripheral in the first case and central in the second. Um, nor can there be any question of distinguishing a center of visual verbal images and a center of general visual images. Uh, the coordinating centers which were enumerated above could only be the points of origin in the regulating organs of processes which extend through the cortex to the same receptors situated in the visual area. It would be all the more impossible to suppose individually distinct traces for each word. When a word is evoked, the localized coordinating center is limited to distributing the nerve influx according to a characteristic rhythm in such a way as to play the melody which corresponds to this word on the visual receptors. Thus, the function of the cerebral regions, which are coordinating centers, is of a completely other type than that of the peripheral conductors. Their activity concerns the structure, the organization, the configuration of behavior. Here, the different words evoked no longer correspond to locally distinct nerve activities, but to different modes of functioning of the same substrate. Function appears to prevail over anatomical devices, organization over juxtaposition. The author even appears to think that anatomical specifications, if they exist, are subsequent and result from the functioning itself, since he indicates, with respect to motor coordination centers, it is true that the coordinating centers are not innate and result from a progressive development, which involves individual variations. The first part of this makes sense to me. It's just a continuation of what we were talking about earlier or in the last session. I don't really understand the verbal thought and visual images uh, discussion, though, honestly. Yeah, I think some of this depends on, like, the specific accounts of um, Pierrot and Marie that I am not familiar with. Um, so, yeah, it, it is a bit obscure to me as well. But I think the general idea is that, um, like, in the case of reading, uh, one sort of simple localization account would be to say that, like, if you can recognize a certain written word, then there must be a, a sort of memory trace in your brain that corresponds to that word. So each word would have its own like um, sort of region, even if it's a, a very small region, um, of course, because you can recognize you know thousands of words. Um, but yeah, there would be some like small portion of the brain that would be that would correspond to the region um, that recognizes this word. Um, and some of the difficulties with this are that um, it doesn't seem to be the case, or at least it's not 
uh, as far as I know, it hasn't been observed that someone would have like uh, an injury to uh, a very small region of the brain that would eliminate their ability to recognize like one specific word or a certain number of words. Um, instead, what happens is you end up with um, uh, certain uh, types of brain damage can result in um, uh, an inability to recognize words as a whole. Um, so the person can still speak and uh, understand spoken language, uh, and often they can actually uh, write as well. They, like if you ask them, write your name or whatever, they can do it. But then like presented with a, a written word, they, they are unable to recognize it, even if it's the word that they just wrote down. Um, so um, here, what's been disturbed is not like a sort of very simple localization of each individual word corresponding to a, a small region of the brain. It's um, a more sort of global function of um, recognizing a, a certain pattern of ink on a page or of dark versus light regions uh, in the visual, um, uh, the visual sphere um, um, as a word, as you know, something that has a, a meaning and a pronunciation and so on. Um, and um, so this, yeah, this idea of a, a melody or a rhythm, um, I think, is like obviously we're not talking about um it's not sort of a literal melody um it's not like something that is um heard in in musical terms it's um some sort of um uh temporally structured sequence of um of uh, psychological and physiological events uh and and it's precisely precisely the sequence as such that um that has a a, a value here as opposed to um just the individual elements so like this was one of the sort of early, uh, I think maybe even one of the first. Um, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so dementia patients often can remember songs. Like if you ask them to sing happy birthday or whatever, they can perform it or, or like any, you know, sort of well-known song. They can sing the song, including words. But if you ask them, you know, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, often they can't um, answer that. Um, uh, and even sometimes uh, patients who can't speak um, can sing they can they can like perform a song that they know well um but they can't uh like you know answer a question like how are you this morning or whatever um um but yeah so like one of the first uh sort of examples that was used to introduce this idea of uh gestalt in psychology was precisely the notion of a melody um because uh like in a, a very sort of associationist account of psychology um, you would you would have like you know perception of one note um, followed by a perception of another note and then and so on like a sequence of these individual perceptions um, and then maybe uh, through the power of association or processes of association you would come to sort of uh, if you hear this same melody many times um, then when you hear uh, the first note you come to expect the second note um, through uh, just through association and so on um, but what the Gestalt psychologist pointed out was that the melody um, doesn't is not connected to any one note. So, for example, you can transpose a melody up an octave or uh, up a, a major third or whatever. You can you can play the same melody in a different key, and it's still recognizably the same melody, uh, even though um, if you play uh, in a different key, it, every single note of the melody might be different than it was uh, in the first key. Um, so this idea that you are just sort of uh, learning the association of one note to the next one doesn't really capture the way that we actually recognize a melody um, 
even if uh, every single note is different from the original melody. Uh, and it turns out, like, uh, just changing one note in the sequence uh, can can turn it into a, a completely different melody. It's, it doesn't sound like the same tune anymore. Whereas changing every note by the same interval um, is recognizably the same melody, even though it doesn't have anything in common in like real terms with the original melody. Um, and so this this was sort of like the general or like the the first introduction to this idea that um, there's something like a structure in perception that we grasp over and above the individual sensations. Uh, and uh, so here, like Merleau-Ponty is using this term melody in, in this sense of like a structure that is not reducible to any um, set of uh, individual psychological elements that would be self-contained. Um, and so like in the case of uh, recognizing a word, for example, like your eyes, uh, like it's been um, obviously not at the time that he's writing, but in, in more recent research, um, you can do studies where there, you put a camera that follow that uh, tracks the a person's eye movements as they read. Um, and so like when you're reading, you sort of um, uh, like skip from, uh, like you read, uh, I think around four or five letters at a time, like you don't sort of, um, pause over each individual letter and then put them together into a word. So like you sort of recognize a group of letters um, together at once, and then you sort of skip over to the next uh, the next group of letters. Um, yeah, if you're reading Simon Don, maybe you do have to read uh, like one letter at a time to make sense of things. Um, but yeah, so um, in reading, you, you just sort of skip from one uh, group of letters to the next one. And, and often it, it sort of, um, uh, the group of letters corresponds to a word. Um, so you you have a, a sequence of um, sensations of uh, light and dark patterns on a page, for example. Um, but what you grasp in that sequence is not like a, a specific um, distribution of light and dark regions uh, on your um, uh, visual field. Uh, instead, what you grasp is the structure behind it, which is precisely um, a sequence of letters that makes up a word. Um, uh, and like most of us, uh, people who have not suffered um, these kinds of brain damage and, and so on, can recognize the same word, whether the word is written in uh, bold or regular type, if it's uh, different fonts, different sizes of letters, um, different uh, orientations. So like, um, uh, like horizontal or at a 45 degree angle or whatever um and also in different regions of the visual field so you can recognize that um a letter a um that's like uh uh towards the top of the visual field is the same letter as the letter a towards the bottom of the visual field even though these are completely different um distributions of light and dark patterns in your visual field um so again we're we're not grasping just a sequence of self-contained sensations uh, that would then be associated with each other through through habit. Um, instead, we're grasping something like a structure which is not reducible to any set of self-contained sensations. Um, and uh, and like this, like obviously much later than when he was writing, but like in uh, uh, optical character recognition that we use now, like in this PDF exactly that we're using, um, uh, like this was. Um, uh, a non-trivial problem was like, how do you recognize, how do you train a computer to recognize um, the letter A, uh, you know, in, in precisely all these different um, circumstances, like different sizes, fonts, etc. Um, uh, you know, it's something that is, is fairly well 
Um, uh, it, it's fairly easy to do now, but uh, it was like not a trivial thing to get this um, problem solved. Um, uh, and, but you know, this is something that um, the average human that you know had learned how to read uh, can do. Um, you know, without even conscious, you know, even consciously aware of what the font is that you're reading, unless you actually pay attention to it, uh, you just sort of immediately grasp that this is a letter A. This is the word um, apple or whatever. Um, you you don't you don't um, uh, and, and like a sign of this is like how it's actually quite difficult to spot typos when you're like proofreading your your text. Like you you sort of even when you you uh, like the the words that are printed on the page or that are on the computer screen um, are missing a letter um, or have the wrong order of letters or whatever. You you sort of see it as what you um, expect to see, um, like the the structure of what of the word that you know is is sort of intended. Um, is what you see, even though that's not actually what's there. Uh, so you, it, it requires a certain amount of like discipline and um, practice to actually learn to read what is written on the page and not what you think is, should be written on the page. Um, uh, and so this sort of shows that what we're doing when we, uh, when we read uh, is, is not just um, like a, a sequence of sensations being strung together. It's, it's precisely this kind of structural uh, what, what he's here calling a melody, um, something that is like, uh, yeah, a structure that is not reducible to uh, sensations. And this example of reading is actually an interesting one in connection with this last bit that he that he mentions here about how um, these supposed coordinating centers um, would would not be innate, um, but would result from some sort of development. Um, so reading, of course, is not like an innate function of human beings. Like writing systems have been around for like maybe five thousand years or so, um, which is much too short a time for humans to evolve like um, a brain region that is sort of specialized in reading. Um, but at the same time, uh, when you study people um, who know how to read um, using like an fMRI, um, you find that it, it's actually um, uh, very similar regions of the brain that are involved in uh, reading activity uh, across different languages and writing systems uh, and so on. So it's, it's, it's as if there is a region, uh, like a reading region of the brain or a set of regions that are involved in reading, uh, even though we know that that can't be the case because writing is too recent for that to have happened. So it's like um, um, there's like um, reading as a, a function is something that people are capable of learning because uh, because their brains uh, that we have evolved to to have, um, you know, have these uh, capacities already. Um, but reading sort of um, collects these capacities and puts them together in a certain way that um, allows for, you know, grasping the structure of a word, for example, um, you know, despite the differences in font and orientation and so on. Um, so like it, it's sort of taking these pre-existing capacities that evolved for obviously very different purposes um, and uh, um, putting them together in a novel way and sort of building them into this more complex structure of reading that we like uh, the average adult is capable of performing, uh, you know, without even thinking about it. Like it's hard to not do it when you see um, a set of letters printed on a page. It's hard to just see them as like... Um, dark and light areas as opposed to letters that form words yeah it is. so yeah it's a kind of structure generating machine in the sense that um yeah so like uh well generating 
I don't know if generating is exactly the right word, but like, um, yeah, it's a capacity to um, sort out uh, a structure from, uh, you know, a, a very a signal that can be very um, uh, heterogeneous. So, yeah, like all the different you think of all the variations of like, yeah, color, font, orientation, et cetera, that we can still recognize words. Um, um, and like you think of like, for example, like uh, you don't see these as much anymore, but captchas where it's like a word um with like weird lines all over it and you can still recognize the letters um and the idea is that it's it's much harder for um computers to recognize the letters when they're covered with lines and weird sort of uh you know the the letters are like bent and and warped and stuff um but humans are capable of performing this task uh with sometimes a little bit of difficulty but at least um within a few seconds um so yeah like we can we receive a signal that can be you know have all sorts of different um uh, uh sort of support uh or carriers like uh different colors different uh yeah different shapes and so on but we can extract from this signal um something some sort of meaningful um message that you know this is the letter a or or this is the word apple um we we use all sorts of um mechanisms that evolved for different purposes like probably i don't know um observing uh the signs of uh uh like um traces of, the, of an animal um like the tracks that an animal has left behind like maybe this sort of capacity to notice details and piece them together into like a um a, a meaningful structure maybe this capacity goes into like our capacity to read um but yeah so it's like how to um extract uh, a sort of invariant meaning from uh, a varying input that can yeah in, in a way that um yeah and, and like very quickly and, and sort of quasi automatically um without any like conscious effort of uh you know like deciphering um what the what the signal means okay uh, so we can go on to the next bit um i'm not sure 61 if you are able to read at this point or uh um, if not, I can I can read this bit. Okay, no worries. Um, I'll I'll read this part. Thus, the older physiology was not mistaken in drawing a parallel between nerve activity and the operations of consciousness. But the method of elementary analysis, which decomposes the whole into a sum of real parts, disassociated the nerve functioning into a mosaic of juxtaposed processes, distributed them among autonomous centers, and reduced acts of consciousness to the association of real contents or to the combined interplay of abstract faculties. The parallelism obtained was illusory. Local excitations can still be made to correspond to isolated sensations, but it is on the condition of working in the artificial milieu of the laboratory experiment. And the excitations as well as the sensations obtained in this way are not the integrating elements of normal nerve functioning or of living consciousness. The discrediting of realistic analysis in psychology as well as in physiology brings about the substitution of a functional or structural parallelism for this parallelism of elements or content quote-unquote mental facts and quote-unquote physiological facts are no longer brought together in pairs. It is recognized that the life of consciousness and the life of the organism are not made up of a collection of events external to each other like the grains of sand in a pile, but rather that psychology and physiology are both investigating the modes of organization of behavior and the degrees of its integration, the one in order to describe them, the other in order to determine their bodily foundation. Until now, we have limited ourselves to summarizing the ideas concerning which the authors are in agreement, that, uh, that is, in short, to criticizing psychological and physiological atomism. 
It remains to be seen under what categories the phenomena brought to light by this critique can be conceptualized positively. In the theory of central functioning, as in that of the reflex, most authors act as if it were sufficient to correct the atomism by the notions of integration and coordination. To our way of thinking, these notions are equivocal. They may represent a genuine reform of psychological and physiological understanding, but they may also represent the simple antithesis or counterpart of atomism. This is what we shall attempt to establish by the analysis of three examples taken from spatial perception, chromatic perception, and the physiology of language. The very facts which call most imperatively for the hypothesis of a global functioning are interpreted in such a way as to take as little as possible away from the atomistic interpretation. It is known that the localization of a perceived point does not depend solely on the location occupied by the excitation on the retina or by the corresponding process in the calcarine area. The simple existence of normal vision in a strabismic subject shows that the spatial values of the retinal points and the points of the calcarine area, which are in one-to-one -one correspondence with them, can be redistributed. Still more simply, stereoscopic perception of depth shows that two processes initiated by quote-unquote disparate points can give rise to the perception of a single point whose localization is determined by no quote local sign unquote inherent in the point stimulated, since it depends only upon their separation. The permutation of local signs in cases of this kind is interpreted by Pierron in a purely anatomical language. It is supposed that a spatial value is conferred on the calcarine neurons by their integration into a determined associative and re reflex circuit. Thus, the modification of their spatial values could be understood only as the establishment of new connections. We are told nothing concerning the causes which could evoke this reworking of synchronizations and regulate it in such a way that the points on the two retinas on which the same object is projected are connected in pairs. The very influence of the stimuli itself would probably be invoked here. Projection of the image of an identical object on two uh, non-corresponding points of the retinas, that is, in classical vocabulary, the disparity of the images, would in some way invoke the integration of these two points in the same associative circuit. But Kafka has rightly pointed out the anthropomorphic element in this notion of retinal disparity. An external observer who knows that the same real point is projected on two non-corresponding points of the, of the retinas can speak of disparity but the eye does not know that these two images come from the same object, and the question is precisely to understand how perception makes them fuse. Uh, okay, yeah, I think maybe I'll stop here. Um, right, so here, uh, yeah, so the previous parts that we've been reading are um, a sort of criticism of the atomistic theory, and now the question is, like, what do we uh, substitute for this atomistic theory? Um, so how do we, like, get beyond this negative side to a, a positive conception of what um, physiology and psychology of perception and cognition uh, should be doing. Um, and uh, so like one way of trying to get beyond atomism would be just to sort of add on top of the atomistic uh, conception of sensation, something like integration or coordination, like these extra functions that would um, sort of grasp the sensations and put them together in some, uh, in some sense. Uh, and so, like, um, one easy example of this kind of coordination function would be in the case of um, stereoscopic vision. So the fact that we perceive, uh, we have one visual field that we perceive, even though we have two eyes that are involved in perception. Um, so in some sense, uh, like, uh, so you can close one eye and still have um, visual sensations. You can still see, you know, color um, areas. Uh, in front of your eye, and you close the other eye and see color areas in front of the the second eye. Um, but then when you open both eyes and look at the world, you don't see like two different color areas. Um, you you see 
uh, a world of objects arrayed in front of you in space, and uh, in particular, you have depth perception in the sense that you can uh, look at an object and perceive roughly how far away from you that object is. Um, and uh, it was already clear in early 20th century percep uh, um, psychology of perception that um, the precisely the difference between your two retinal images was involved in some way in this perception of the distance of an object, so in in-depth perception. Um, so like, if the object is, is very far away, if you're looking, I don't know, at a, at a mountain in, in the distance or something, the two retinal images will be quite similar um, because the, the angle is, uh, is relatively narrow. Whereas uh, if you look at, um, like if you put, uh, put a finger like right in between your eyes, like just over your nose, um, the two retinal images are very different because the angle is, is quite uh, wide. Like the angle from which your left eye sees the finger and the angle from which your right eye sees the finger are almost opposite each other. Um, so uh, in this case, you, you do actually see, uh, or depending on what the distance is, you, you can actually make yourself see a double finger. Um, um, but uh, this is sort of an exceptional case. But then like objects in like middle distance um, like a few meters away from your eyes, you, you still see them as one object, but you, you perceive them as at a distance of a few meters. Um, so this, the degree of difference um, between the two retinal images uh, is somehow used to bring about a perception of the distance of the object. Um, and so like one, one, way, one way of explaining this or um, setting out like what is happening is just to say that you have like um, you know, a set of sensations on one eye uh, and a set of sensations produced by the other eye. Uh, and then there's some sort of region of the brain or some function in the brain that takes those two images and like measures what is the difference uh, uh, between them. And then based on that measure, it, it sort of computes what the distance of the object must be um, to bring about that kind of perception or, or that, you know, set of pairs of sensations. Um, but what Merleau-Ponty here sort of points out, um, or like the, the type of criticism he's going to develop here, is that um, this already sort of presupposes that, that your eye or that region of your brain knows that there's one object to, um, to sort of measure the distance from. Like, it's only if you know that, you know, retinal image A and retinal image B are actually images of the same object that it makes sense to try to figure out what the difference is between them. Uh, and so, like in certain experimental settings, there, like there's these like um, devices that you can use to project two different images on each eye, and what the subject actually ends up seeing is not like some sort of joint, um, like I don't know, hybrid of the two images, but they instead see one image or the other, and it sort of alternates. Like at first, you see the image projected on your left eye, and then you see the after a few seconds the the image on your right eye, and then uh, after a few more seconds, back to the left eye and so on. Um, so uh, in this case, you somehow are, uh, like, the images don't fuse, um, whereas in the case of the regular perception of an object a few meters away, you actually do perceive one object um, despite the differences in the retinal images. Um, but, like, how, like, if you, if you want to account for regular stereoscopic vision, in terms of you know measuring the disparity between the two images, then somehow your your eye and visual regions of the brain have to know 
like this this is actually just two images of the same object and so it makes sense to measure the difference whereas in other instances like this sort of uh, laboratory setting with the two different images um, these two images are too different from each other or they don't depict the same object so it doesn't make sense to measure the difference um, so like you're still like you haven't really gotten any further or you, you've only sort of displaced the problem because now you still have to figure out like how is it that we are able to recognize that these two images are of the same object? Um, and this is not something that you can um, sort of express in terms that are local to one eye and then a coordination between the two eyes. Um, like somehow, somehow this uh, recognition of one object has to happen before even you can compare the two eyes with each other or like logically it's prior to that comparison. So. Um, yeah, it's it's like a, a sort of logical problem with this theory that it, it has to presuppose that you can recognize um, that that there is one object before you can even do this comparison that is supposed to allow you to perceive the object in the first place. So, sorry, so I, I had to turn away for a second, but the, the line of criticism that he's developing is that um, in order for this disparation with these two similar images to be resolved there has to be some way that the mind recognizes that it's the same object in the first place it's not like it can step outside of itself to see see what's really there um and this probably has something to do with uh, the uh the object kind of standing out from the field in the same way on both retinal images yeah i think it's it's even like I don't want to say simpler, but maybe like earlier in the whole process than than something like that. It's it's even like just like yeah. So for the experimenter who is like um, manipulating what the subject sees, you're, you're sort of looking at the subject uh, from outside, as you said. Like you can see the object, um, like I don't know, an apple on the table a few meters away from the subject, and you can see the re the the subject's two eyes, and you can see the angle between each of those eyes and the the object. Um, uh, and so like, this is sort of what the this theory sort of presupposes is that you're like outside perception. Uh, you're, you're looking at the whole perceptual situation from the outside. Um, but of course, the perceiving subject themselves can't sort of step outside of their own perception and, you know, see what is the object and what are the angles um, between the two eyes and so on. Um, somehow from within perception, within that perceptual situation, you have to be able to um, distinguish, you know, when is it the case that uh, the these two different images are actually images of the same object, and when is it the case that um, actually I'm getting two different perceptual images that are have nothing to do with each other. Um, and and it's a, quarter, it's a sort of circle because, like, your experience of your visual perception of an object is precisely supposed to be um, the result of these two retinal images being fused together. But you can only actually do that fusion if you already know that it's one object in the first place. So like, um, you have to already know what it is you're trying to figure out, like uh, the, you know, the fact that this, there's one object, you have to already know that there's one object before you can even perform this fusion operation to bring about an image of the object, um, which is supposed to be how you're um, observing the object in the first place right and he's gonna uh, is it he's gonna go into how how he thinks that happens um he hasn't 
laid that out yet, right? Yeah, exactly. So he he's not like here. Um, so again, he's still sort of criticizing other people's theories at this point. He's he's saying like one sort of um, immediately obvious way of getting beyond a purely atomistic account of perception would be to add something like integration onto uh, integration or coordination. So you would start with these atomistic sensations, and then you would say. Um, of course, that's not sufficient. We have to add some sort of integration function that connects these um, different sensations with each other. And, and then visual perception uh, and stereoscopic vision would be like um, one uh, example of this kind of function. Um, but then he's going to argue here, and, and like he's starting this argument at this point, um, that just sort of adding integration on top of atomistic sensations doesn't really solve the problem. Um, um, we instead, like, ultimately what we have to be able to understand is how um, perception is already structured all the way down. Like, there's no such thing as a, a sort of non-structured or atomistic perception that would then subsequently be connected to some other um, um, atom of perception and, and bring about, like, our sort of experience of a, a world of objects and uh, the properties of those objects. Um, yeah, so it, it like the structure is there from the beginning um, is essentially what we have to, you know, find a way to understand. Um, so like, yeah, our the sort of model of what what it is to perceive something, it should not be like um, our sensation of a red dot or our, our sensation of a particular tone. Our, our model for what it is to perceive something should be perceiving a melody, which is already something structured. That's really interesting. Um... I'm yeah interested to see how he develops that because um, I mean I, I think maybe because it's this uh, example that Simon Don loves to give of the disparate retinal images, um, but the way in which Merleau-Ponty develops this argument may have interesting implications for like reading Simon Don um, if uh, maybe like a, a, you know Simon Don is pretty light on epistemology. And I just think it could be interesting to read uh, Merleau-Ponty's position on this um, against or with Simon Don. Yeah, that was that was like my main sort of uh, intention in, in suggesting this book to read after having read Simon Don because um, yeah, they, they they use a lot of the same materials. Like again, this sort of uh, example of uh, the disparate um, retinal images, um, but the the use that they make of those examples and materials is quite different. Um, so yeah, trying to like, um, contrast them to each other, see like what elements sort of fit together, what, which ones, uh, are different from each other. Um, I think, uh, I think that's, um, uh, sort of the main thing that I, I'm hoping to take away from this, uh, reading, reading of this book together after having read a couple of Simon Don books. That's really interesting. I love that it's the same, uh, the same example. Yeah. And I think, um, I'm just trying to remember exactly what the sort of institutional connection, like they, they did sort of know of each other. Um, I don't remember in detail. Um, I think, um, I think in, on the mode of existence of technical objects, he cites Metloponti, uh, or, or, or it's like in the, uh, sort of acknowledgement section that he mentions him. I can't remember exactly. I'd have to look that up. Um, but yeah, so they, they were sort of around the same, uh, institutions in France at the same time. Um, but of course, they, they sort of, uh, oh, yeah, the, yeah, the individuation is dedicated to Mendel-Ponty. So yeah, that, that, yeah, so there's like, obviously, they um, were aware of each other's work, they were sort of 
working on similar themes, but like took very different directions in terms of how they um, approach those themes. So um, yeah, I think it's an interesting sort of uh, case study of like how people can start from yeah very similar um, sort of intellectual environments, but develop uh, like quite different uh, accounts of of the topics that they deal with. Um, you know, on the basis of similar materials. But yeah, so this this notion that perception is like the sort of paradigm example of perception is perception of a melody is one that I think is hard to like. It's very, in some sense, it's it's quite counterintuitive because it we 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 really feel like you know perceiving a melody has to involve in some way perceiving each note and then putting them together. Like like it's it feels like logically the perception of each note comes first and then you somehow connect each note to each other. Um, but that, that's sort of what the, the whole book is going to argue against is, is like, yeah, we actually like what comes first is the perception of the melody and each note, uh, is only sort of perceived insofar as it fits into that structure in some specific way. Um, so we have to like sort of reorient our, uh, thought patterns to allow this idea that you can perceive a melody as such, um, at, or you can grasp that melody, um, not just as a sequence of notes that is then sort of secondarily put into a pattern, uh, but you grasp the pattern itself first. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so um, the comment here is about whole language learning in education, which um, sort of uh, subordinated the study of grammar to reading and writing. Uh, it's not something that I know a lot about, but I know that like in um, sort of elementary education in, uh, in terms of teaching people how to read, teaching kids how to read, there was... Um, there's like different approaches, um, phonics and uh, I forget the other one. But like the question is, like, to what extent do you um, sort of focus on like uh, teaching kids that, you know, this letter makes this sound and this combination of letters makes this sound um, and then sort of build up from the bottom up to like recognizing words and sentences? Or on the other hand, do you like start from words and sentences um, and and sort of allow the kids to like grasp each word as a whole uh, a whole unit um and like obviously there's like you can't sort of do one in isolation from the other like you have kids have to learn what letters are to be able to grasp words and vice versa um but um yeah i guess it's a question of emphasis like you know how how much do you focus on one element versus the other um like uh yeah it's it's very it's something I don't know a lot about, but it, yeah, it's very interesting to try to figure out like um, how do you bring about this kind like so this this sort of structured perception or this melodic perception is something that you have to learn how to do um, in many cases, at least uh, like in the case of reading. Uh, obviously, uh, infants or people that have never been taught how to read will just see a sequence of lines on a page. Uh, so you have to learn how to perceive the melody of those lines or like the the structure of those lines um but like how exactly we go about learning that is quite mysterious um it, it like a lot of the time it seems like it has to do just with like sort of presenting examples and then eventually the, the kids sort of catch on without really you having um told them what the like explicit structure is it, it just sort of um takes hold at some point yeah, I really like the melody idea. Um, I mentioned this, I think, uh, maybe it was before we started recording in like the last session, but I was reading some uh, a book about Heidegger's reading of Kant and then also um, 
some of Kant and the problem of metaphysics. And um, so I was thinking about, you know, schematism and temporalization. Uh, but the idea that there's this, you know, a melody is this temporal structure, which is kind of grasped as a whole and yet happens in time, um, I think works well with uh, with that reading of Kant. I mean, maybe already with Kant himself and the, the uh, application of concept in the schematism over time. Yeah, I mean, the schematism is, of course, one of the most difficult parts of the first critique. Um, like, he only dedicates, like, a few paragraphs to what exactly this is, but it plays a, a sort of crucial role, or, you know, at least on some readings, it's a very important element in making everything sort of hang together. Um, but, yeah, so, it, like, uh, I think Kant himself gives the example of, like, the image of a dog, um, um, where, like, to like we, we might have a concept of a dog as you know a four-legged carnivore that you know i don't know barks and whatever has these other properties um but um this concept like to be able to apply it to like the set of perceptions that i'm having right now and say like this is a dog um you have to be able to take that concept and sort of um i don't know spread it out over time or like apply it to a sequence of temporally extended um perceptions like you never you never just have like some perception that just you know checks all the boxes of all the properties of a dog like a dog is not always barking or always running or whatever um um although some dogs it might seem like they're always barking um uh but um yeah so like you have to be able to connect this sequence of perceptions like you see the the head you see the tail etc like from one yeah seemed schematizing an annoying dog yeah. Um, but yeah, like you see one portion of the dog and then you see another portion and you have to be able to connect those together and say th this sequence of perceptions is an exemplification or schematization of the concept of a dog. Um, and, and this is like uh, a somewhat mysterious capacity um, in the sense that like the dogness is never like present to you as a whole. It's instead this whole sequence, like the fact that the perception evolves in a certain way over time that like you know the dog-shaped head doesn't suddenly turn into a uh uh i don't know a pig-shaped body or whatever um but like it's like this sort of harmonious connection of all the different um perceptions through time um yeah it's a, a dog-like rhythm of the time slice so that's a good way of describing it and and so like somehow we grasp this dog-like rhythm or melody or whatever you want to call it um and and grasp it as precisely the the rhythm or melody of a dog uh and uh like this is obviously a very sort of simplistic example but like yeah any any sort of concept that we have that we can recognize an object as falling under that concept we have to be able to um sort of recognize that melody or rhythm uh because and this is something that Husserl talks about is that you know precisely one of the sort of essential properties of um perceptual experience of, of physical objects is that we never grasp everything about the object at the same time. We only ever see one aspect of the object. So like you see one side of it or you see it um, um, in one circumstance where it's like the dog might be running now, but later on it will be sleeping. And, and so like these, um, you always only ever perceive one aspect of a physical object and the object itself is made up of an infinite sort of um, collection of all of these aspects but structured in such a way like that each one is connected in this 
sort of harmonious way with the other ones, or this melodic way maybe would be a better a better word to use. So like, yeah, there, there, there's a, a sequence of uh, dog time slices that all fit together in the way that you expect. Um, so yeah, like any any perception of a physical object already involves some sort of grasp of, you know, if I walk around this object and look at it from the other side, I'm going to I'm going to perceive um, the back of this object that will be, you know, in some comprehensible way connected to the front of the object, even if I might be surprised that even if uh, it looks like a dog from the front, but I, I walk around it and it turns out to be a cardboard cutout, still um, the 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 back and front of the cardboard cutout are connected to each other by a, a sequence of perceptions that leads from one to the other. Um, so um, any perception of a physical object involves this kind of uh, temporal extension, um, at least possible temporal extension, um, that like, insofar as I grasp something as a physical object, I recognize that I could see it from a different angle, or um, I could observe it doing something different or, you know, exhibiting some other property that it's not exhibiting now. Um, and so this is like, sort of intrinsic to the structure of what it is to perceive a physical object in the first place. Yeah, music and poetry are um, sort of the the most, I guess, temporally oriented forms of art. So something like a statue or a painting is, uh, of course, your experience of it, uh, insofar as it's a physical object, is extended through time. You you see a painting by looking at one region and then another region, and somehow, you know, grasping that they're regions of the same painting and how they relate to each other. Um, but the painting as such is is something that is already there um, and you just have an experience of it through time. Whereas music and poetry, uh, well, poetry, written poetry is a little bit different, but like um, a musical work, for example, you hear it through time. The, the work itself is like temporally structured. Um, there's no, like you have a score um, that is all written down on a page, for example, um, but that is considered sort of secondary. Uh, it's like a description or a... Um, uh, an instruction for producing the musical work um, as opposed to the work itself. Um, uh, and yeah, so the, the work itself has this temporal structure. Um, and um, so, yeah, and, and then poetry, insofar as it's um, recited or, you know, uh, orally produced poetry, um, is also, it also has this temporal structure. Um, uh, and, you know, what relation that has to the, the written work on the page is something that probably differs from one um, from one poet to another, like someone like uh, Malarmé, for example, like the the uh, presentation on the page that's very important to his work, but others might be more, um, the, the presentation on the page might be like less essential to the work itself. Um, um, but yeah, so like th this is, yeah, all the different arts have different sort of relationships to this temporal structure. And um, yeah, so music is probably the, the most, um, the most like, temporally oriented of the art forms um but uh yeah it'd, it'd be very interesting to sort of look at art from the perspective of schematization uh, or this sort of melodic perception as like some essential component to what it is to perceive in the first place okay uh so maybe we can go on to the next bit so we're at will it be claimed on page 77 if uh i think angus you and i i think are the only ones who are um able to read today so if you want to take the next bit yeah, no problem. I can read. Will it be claimed that the two stimuli are immediately indicated as identical by their resemblance, which latter is an objective characteristic? But one of Helmholtz's experiments shows that it is not the similitude of two retinal images which provokes the integration of the corresponding processes uh, 
into a single circuit. I think this is a quote from Helmholtz. If a white piece of paper marked with two black dots, B and A, is presented on one side of a stereoscope, and on the other, a black piece of paper with two white dots, B1 and A1, which are closer together, then when the left eye fixates on B and the right on B1, dots A and A1 are seen as a single dot on a plane situated behind the plane BB1. In this case, however, the dot on the right retina corresponding to the one where A is projected is a black dot like A itself. The dot on the left retina corresponding to the one where A1 is projected is white like A1 itself. The two dots A and A1 do not present any common qualitative characteristic. They have nothing in common except being dots on a homogeneous ground. Thus, it is the function completed by a stimulus in the constellation in which it is integrated, which is determining. This is the equivalent of saying that the permutation of local signs in the calcarine area is not a phenomenon which can be accounted for point by point. The permutation takes place in each point according to what is demanded by the whole. It is indeed, if you wish, the disparity of images which is the cause. But this disparity is a physiological reality only if it is represented in the visual sector by forces which tend to relate similar excitations. Um, and this similarity exists only with regard to the function completely completed respectively by each of these excitations in the whole of which it is a part. The projection of two identical images on two non-corresponding points of the retinas is never sufficient as a local phenomenon to produce an effect. One of uh, Jainch's experiments, interpreted by Kafka, shows that two luminous filaments on a black ground, even when they are unequally distant from the subject, are seen as situated on the same plane. But once they are presented in full light, they are arranged in depth. It is reasonable to attribute the difference of the effects to the difference of the circumstances, the localization in depth to the presence, in the second case, of a ground of objects which are projected on the retina at the same time as the two threads. This ground reinforces the disparity of the two images of the thread, which remained inefficacious until then. Thus, the localization, uh, thus the localization in depth assigned to the thread and the spatial value of the excitation which it projects depend in the final analysis on those of the whole field. Since the same reasoning could apply to each of the points which it is believed, quote-unquote, compose it, it follows that the disparity of retinal images and the attribution of a spatial value are not punctual phenomena, but phenomena of structure. They do not depend on the properties of the excitation in each place or in all places, but result from the properties of the whole as such. Uh, maybe I'll do one more paragraph. Um, thus, if we postulate the intervention of a quote-unquote disequilibrium between the excitations coming from the two eyes in the correct perception of a strabismic subject or in the stereoscopic vision of depth, as one can postulate a disequilibrium between visual excitations and those furnished by the other receptors in order to explain the functional reorganization in hemianopsia. We will only be developing the classical notion of the disparity of images by stripping it of its anthropomorphic character. To the extent that the calcarine area represents a punctual projection of the retina, and to the extent that the retina is treated as a bundle of autonomous nerve terminations, quote, the retina, like the calcarine area, seems 
only to have the role of mediating the stimuli. Um, the construction of the total visual field is evidently not the expression of the activity of the calcarine area. It is only an intermediary which furnishes the materials with the help of which the entire visual field is constructed by the fundamental function of the brain, unquote. Is integration in the associative circuits sufficient to make possible this construction of the spatial field? Uh, psychophysiology had imagined a determined local si- quote-unquote local sign, imagined attributing a determined quote-unquote local sign to each point of the two retinas. Experience having shown that local signs are not immutable, Pierron no longer relates their distribution to pre-established anatomical devi- devices in the retinas, but to coordinating circuits. In this way, it is conceived that two, two non-corresponding points of the two retinas integrated into the same associative circuit can enter into functional relationship and receive the same local sign. But which one? Where does the associative circuit, in turn, obtain the local specificity which it communicates to the partial excitations? If one thinks that it belongs to it by construction, one is only referring the anatomical theory of local signs to a higher system, and we come, uh, we come up against the difficulties which it has encountered. The spatial localization of a determined excitant is modified by the introduction of additional points into the field. The local specificity of an associative circuit does not belong to and is not inherent in it. It depends on its relations with other associative circuits, which at the same time are distributing concordant local signs to other points of the retina. I wish he had uh, images here of this experiment by Helmholtz. It sounds interesting. Um, but yeah, I guess the it seems like kind of the upshot of this section is that there's uh, this structuration which organizes the local excitations and that these um, regions of the retina or the calcarine region provide the, uh, I guess, more punctual sensations, which are um, organized within a structure, which is contributed, I don't know, by the brain as a whole. Yeah, I think that's right in terms of the sort of overall um, message here. Um, this, this experiment from Helmholtz is, uh, is pretty interesting. Um, yeah, it is a little bit hard to visualize from the description here, but as far as I understand, you have um, a white piece of paper with two black dots on it and a black piece of paper with two white dots on it. And you present uh, each one of these pieces of paper to one eye uh, using this stereoscope device. Um, and the subject is instructed to look at the, the at one dot in each eye. So the, the white dot on the, the black page and the black dot on the white page. Um, and then what happens is the second dot on each page Sort of the the two the two dots um, fuse together so that you you perceive um, uh, a sort of extra dot. So you're you're focusing on one dot on each page, and then you perceive a second dot, which is the fusion of the the second dot on each of the pages. Um, but the one of the dots is a black dot, and the other dot is a white dot. So in terms of quality uh, of perception, there's there's absolutely nothing in common. They're like completely opposed to each other in terms of the actual sensations that each dot is producing. Um, but what, what they have in common is that each of them is a figure uh, on uh, uh, some sort of ground. Um, so they, the, the white dot stands out on the black page and the black dot stands out on the white page. Um, and, and so it, this is a, a sort of counterexample to the idea that the fusion of the two retinal images would be a result of 
some sort of objective resemblance between the two images. Um, so it's, it can't be the case that the images fuse together if they're, um, in objective terms, sufficiently similar to each other. Instead, it has to do, there has to be some sort of structuring process, uh, a sort of top-down recognition of what role these two images play in the overall structure of the visual field. Um, like precisely the sticker ground example in the case of the dots is like a very similar, uh, simple um, uh, instance of this, but you know more complex ones like a, a face or something like that would also work. Um, but uh, in each case, what is recognized is not, uh, you know, it's not just that there that image one and image like the left retinal image and the right retinal image are um, similar to each other in some objective sense. Instead. There is some sort of structure of the visual field that allows for the two retinal images to be assigned the same role and to, to sort of um, uh, bring about this integration or this fusion of the two images um, uh, when the two images are um, uh, structured in the right way. Yeah, and then the last bit is also a little bit difficult because he's he sort of introduced this, um, um, yeah, this problem of... Um, you know, if if it's not the case that similarity of the two images is what brings about the fusion, then um, you know, then what is it? Um, what is it that that does bring about that fusion? And and then so he he, he poses this problem, uh, and then he he mentions one sort of possible solution, um, which would be to say that um, the two portions of the retina are integrated into sort of one circuit or one. Um, yeah, like connect. They're they're sort of connected to each other in some uh, physiological sense. So, like uh, point uh, A of retina of the left retina is connected to point A of the right retina, um, and and like this connection is what brings about the fact that these two retinal images are fused with each other. Um, and then he sort of immediately goes on to criticize this account. Um, and what he argues here is essentially that this only sort of pushes the problem back to the next level of integration. So like if um, if like retinal region A on the left retina is connected to retinal region A on the right retina um, through the circuit, they, there's like a circuit that connects them to each other. Then the question is, how does the circuit that um, connects um, like the, the circuit A that connects the equivalent regions on the two retinas, how is that connected to circuit B that it connects two different regions on each retina? Um, like there, there has to be some sort of spatial localization uh, of the images that of the now of the fused images. So we have to be able to say that um, the the objects that I can see uh, um, using my stereoscopic vision um, is to the left of this other object or, you know, above it or whatever. Um, so what what brings about the localization of these fused retinal images um, or these uh, how is it that these circuits that connect one retina to the other um, how how are they spatially localized and then you have the same problem um, because again um, you still have to explain um, like any attempt to um, say that it's like some sort of similarity or objective connection between one and the other. Uh, is going to run into the same kinds of problems. So again, you have to say that there's some sort of structuring, like top-down structuring, that um, assigns uh, a function to each of these circuits, um, these sort of higher-level circuits that connect the individual retinal regions of each retina. Um, so this, yeah, again, it only sort of pushes the problem back to another stage or, or like pushes it to a higher level. 
um, because now you just have to localize you're, you're localizing not just individual sensations on one retina, you have to localize the circuits that connect one retina to the other, um, but you still have the same problem. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next bit. Um, maybe this will be our last one, depending on how much discussion we have of it. But uh, yeah, so I'll go on, I'll read the next bit. We are referred back then to a higher coordinating system. In the same manner, every anatomical conception of coordination will leave the explanation incomplete by always deferring it. There can be no question of anything but a functional conception. This is to say that local specificities are distributed to the associative circuits themselves at each moment according to what is demanded by the equilibrium of the total constellation. One could wonder by what chance the retinal images of two objectively similar points, or ones which exercise the same function in two colored holes, happen precisely to be linked to the same local sign. The problem disappears as soon as the local specificity of associative circuits is assigned to them in each case by the structure of the whole. For then, the construction of the spatial field is no longer a centripetal, but a centrifugal phenomenon. It is not because two retinal excitations are integrated into the same associative circuit that their mental correspondence receives the same function in perceived space. Rather, it is this common function which designates them to be linked by an associative circuit. Coordination itself appears as a result, the effect of a phenomenon of structure or quote-unquote form. The analysis of the physiological conditions of chromatic perception will lead to the same conclusions. Here again, we choose the ex expositions which H. Pierron gives of them as typical, and we will raise the question as to whether the idea of integration or coordination is sufficient to resolve the difficulties of physiological atomism. Although Pierron rejects the hypothesis of a special center for color vision, he accepts that the receptor cones of the retina are related to a keyboard of chromatic neurons, each one of which is susceptible to the perception of a nuance. The wavelength of the luminous excitant would itself assure the shifting of the nervous influx towards one of the chromatic keyboard notes, which corresponds to the nuance of the light. With regard to the degrees of intensity of the colors, the physiological substrate would again be found in different circuitings. When a differential threshold is crossed, it is because the nerve influx, which until then was channeled toward a certain anatomical device, suddenly shifted toward another circuit. Are we not brought back to anatomical representations which localize the function of chromatopsia and even the different degrees of this function in a certain nerve territory? Although the author never, nevertheless wanted chromatopsia, stereopsia, and photopsia to be affected in the order of their decreasing fragility in case of lesion. We are dealing with a horizontal localization which attributes certain areas to certain contents. Just as above, with regard to the quote-unquote local signs, we can wonder if the chromatic values assigned to each of the objective points which are projected on the retina really depend solely on the properties of the afferent local influx. The phenomenon of contrast, if we could adhere to the classical interpretation, would not be an obstacle to the punctual analysis of chromatic values related to each part of the field. For Herring's theory, for example, supposes in the most complex cases only a reciprocal action between the area which plays the role of figure and that which plays the role of ground, in which the proper effects of each of the areas are added together. If the contrast of brightnesses is taken as an example, one will reason in the following fashion. White induces black around it. Gray on a black background will, will appear very clearly because this induction effect reinforces the proper color of the ground. Gray on a gray ground will appear darker and emerge less distinctly because the two gray areas mutually darken each other. A large gray disc on a black ground will appear less clear than little gray pieces of the same nuance on the same ground, since by the same mechanism, the quote-unquote internal contrast causes the different parts of the large disc to darken each other. In this conception, contrast depends only on the size and the geometric distribution of the stimuli. The total effect is the sum of the local effect. Thus, the phenomenon would demand in cerebral physiology only the hypothesis of a reciprocal action of the local influxes, which seems compatible with Pierron's schema. 
But in the case of color contrast, it has been possible to bring to light phenomena which it seems impossible to interpret in the same sense. It is known that a ring of grey paper on a yellow ground appears blue, and on the other hand, that a window illuminated by neutral daylight appears bluish in a room lighted by the yellow light of electricity. Initially, these two phenomena appear com comparable. In reality, they are not. While the yellow ground in the first case retains a very strong saturation after the grey ring has been introduced, walls lighted by electricity appear, on the contrary, faded and whitish and take on a distinctly yellow tint only if they are observed through an opening in the screen. Thus, in the first case, the contrast affects only the figure. In the second, it simultaneously affects figure and ground and consequently accentuates in the first case the difference that one would find between the grey and the yellow in examining them separately, while in the second case, between the apparent blue of the daylight and the whitish yellow of the electric light, the difference is no greater than between the daylight when it is seen as neutral and the electric light when it appears to be a saturated yellow. This is because the second phenomenon obeys a very different law than the first. Everything happens as if the colored light, yellow, of the ground tended to appear neutral, while the objectively neutral light of the figure tended to take on a color complementary to the objective color of the ground. In other words, with the electric light assuming the function of ground or of neutral light, as if the objectively neutral light took on an appearance such that the difference of the objective colors were transposed but maintained in our perception. It is a question of a sort of, quote, shift of level, unquote, by which the color which plays the role of ground becomes neutral, while the color of the figure is modified in such a way that the difference between ground and figure remains invariable. Quote, if two parts of the retina are differently stimulated, no constant relationship will exist between each part of the phenomenal field and its local stimulation. But under certain conditions, there will be a constant relationship between the gradient in the phenomenal field and the stimulus difference. Unquote. Perhaps it would be better to find a new name for this new phenomenon which would distinguish it from the first, or to borrow the term, quote-unquote, transformation from Yent. In any case, it is no longer a question here of increase, as in the classical phenomenon of contrast, but a transposition of a difference in colors. In the experiments on which Herring's theory was based, color acted on a neighboring color. Herring supposed that the yellow of the ground acted as such on the gray of the figure to modify the appearance. In Kafka's phenomenon, on the contrary, the transposition cannot be related to either of the two terms present or to actions of one superimposed on the other. This point, which is essential for our purpose, can be made evident by a crucial experiment. If the blue color of the figure really results from the yellow color of the ground, the effect should be accentuated by accentuating the coloration of the ground. Therefore, therefore, let us place an opaque object on a sheet of white paper in a room lighted by diffuse daylight and by an electric light bulb so that the electric light is screened by the object. Only the daylight penetrates and this shadow appears to be a saturated blue. If all the surface surrounding the zone of shadow is covered with yellow paper, the coloration of the milieu is reinforced and the phenomenon of contrast should be accentuated if the classical theory were true. In fact, the blue coloration of the shadow disappears under these conditions, and all the more completely as the yellow paper employed is more saturated. The result of the experiment does not vary if one arranges to eliminate the difference of clarity between the shadow and the yellow paper, as well as the internal contours of the yellow sheet, factors which are unfavorable to contrast. The result still remains the same no matter what the color of the light used. Inexplicable on the classical thesis, this phenomenon justifies, on the contrary, the notion of color level. At the beginning of the experiment, the yellow light, which constituted the, the ground, tended to be manifested in perception as neutral light, and correlatively, the objectively neutral light appeared blue. When its color level is given back to the ground, the condition of the total quote-unquote transformation phenomenon is made to disappear. The apparent color of the quote, uh, sorry, the apparent color quote of the enclosed field does not depend, as contrast theory is maintained, on its own objective radiation of the surrounding field, that is, on two factors which combine in a summative way but on a gradient between enclosed and enclosing radiation and on the color in which the latter appears, end quote. Uh, so this is a bit of a long passage and also somewhat complicated, but I think the general idea, um, yeah, some of the, 
like details of this experiment are a bit hard to follow, but the general idea is that um, color perception and, and the perception of color contrast in particular um, is also not explicable in a sort of bottom-up way in terms of um, sensations of individual colors that would then be joined together in some sense. Um, instead, what we find is that there are all these sort of top-down phenomena of structuration. So it depends not just... Uh, so what color you perceive depends not just on the wavelength of the light that reaches the retina in, in that particular point, uh, but also on what is the light uh, coming from the rest of the surroundings and striking the retina. Uh, and so like maybe a simpler example than the one that he's describing here is just that um, if, you, um, if you take a piece of white paper um, and you look at it during the day near a window when you have sunlight coming in, the paper looks white. Um, but then if you turn on an electric light, um, there, the, the light uh, is slightly yellow compared to the daylight and the paper will have a will have a sort of yellowish tint to it. Uh, but then later on in the evening or if you close the curtains and look at the piece of paper under the electric light again, um, now the paper looks normal. It just looks white. Um, uh, and what has happened is that in the first case, you um, you're perceiving the paper with the daylight as neutral, uh, as, as sort of the, the ground, the neutral um, color of light. And then the electric light um, is perceived as yellowish and gives a sort of yellowish tint to the paper. But then when you close the curtains or it's nighttime and you turn on the electric light, now the electric light is perceived as the neutral color. And the, the paper, the white sheet of paper that reflects this, this light is seen just as white and not as yellowish anymore. Um, and uh, you know what? What we can the lesson we can draw from this is that the again the the color that we perceive in a certain region or the color that we perceive that an object has is determined not just by the light that that object reflects, but also what uh, the surrounding illumination is and and what the sort of perceived background neutral color is in that context. And you can also you can do these experiments, for example, with more extreme coloration, like you take like a, a, a red colored light bulb or you put a red film over a light bulb uh, and the whole room is is like illuminated in a red color. Um, uh, and so when you first walk in the room, everything looks sort of reddish. But then after uh, a few seconds or minutes, everything just sort of looks normal again. Um, but conversely, or, or like if you take the same lighting uh, and you look at an object through like a small aperture, a small um, window or whatever into the room and you look at um, a white piece of paper in the room, that paper looks red now because it's under red lighting that is not perceived as background. So the same lighting can um, can produce the effect of um, either preserving the color once that lighting is perceived as uh, as neutral or it can have the effect of changing the color if you perceive it as um, specific to that object. Um, and it depends on, yeah, it depends on which color. It, it's sort of like the key of the color that you perceive as the neutral background um, that, that determines what color you see the object as having. So here again, um, we can't suppose that there is something like um, a, a, a sort of isolated color sensation that later on gets integrated with other co other color sensations. Um, instead, we have to perceive the whole scene uh, as colored in, in, in a certain key um, with a certain neutral color as like the, the central color. 
and um, all the other colors are sort of arranged with reference to this other color. So there's a, a sort of color structure to the scene that we perceive um, when we see an object as having a certain color or when we perceive uh, light as, as, as having a certain color. That's very interesting. I can see the, uh, there's a kind of stylistic continuity between Merleau-Ponty and Simon Don. It's <laughs> like endless proliferation of examples from, um, I mean, just uh, a series of experiments he just ran through. It reminds me of um, uh, reading Simon Don. Maybe there's more continuity in Merleau-Ponty's examples. Uh, Simon Don sometimes in the same paragraph can end up someplace completely different from where he started. Yeah, I think the uh, sort of line of argument, well, it's a little bit broken up because of the way we're reading it, like sort of just one passage at a time. Um, But I think you can trace the line of argument a little bit more easily in Mercant-Ponty than in Simondon, where, yeah, as you said, you you have sometimes these paragraphs where he'll start like, or even a sentence with just like a sequence of semicolons. And like it starts with something about um, corals or whatever, and then we'll like proceed to... I don't know something about like um, human societies, and and it just sort of like one one thought is just sort of juxtaposed to the next, and you're supposed to figure out how they connect to each other yourself. Um, uh, whereas here, yeah, each of these experiments is um, mentioned as like uh, a counterexample or like an instance of a, a problem, um, like for a particular theory. So like if if we suppose that. Um, uh, there's this sort of integration function that happens after something like an atomistic sensation. So like a perception is brought about through um, first these atomistic sensations and then second, uh, some kind of integration of those sensations. If we suppose this kind of theory, then we run into these problems, which are exemplified by these different experiments. That's sort of like the argumentative structure of what he's giving us here. But yeah, it's it can be hard to um, sort of like you, you sort of lose track of the thread sometimes because he goes through each of these experiments sometimes in a lot of detail. Um, but yeah, that's like the, the uh, I don't know, the line through all these different experiments is, is that he's, he's going through some of these uh, counterexamples that show that you can't hold this sort of simple integration theory as a, a way of getting beyond atomism. Yeah, I think that's a good place to stop anyway. Um, so yeah, uh, unless there's any sort of final comments uh, on that last bit. Nothing else from you. Just uh, look forward to getting into the uh, the positive argument. I guess we've been going through yeah. a lot of alternate options he doesn't like, but yes. But I think yeah. So I think yeah. I think it's part of what he wants to get across is that you can only sort of grasp this um, yeah this whatever this exactly melodic perception or rhythmic perception or whatever. Like we we only grasp it by means of this criticism of the existing theories and and sort of like we we sort of appreciate it as necessary um, by um, going through these existing theories and seeing how they fail. And uh, so, yeah, it is sometimes a little, it takes a certain amount of patience and like, yeah, do you have to like sort of keep the big picture in mind while going through all these details? But um, yeah, it's, I think that's like, yeah, the trees for the forest kind of effect. Yeah. it, It can be hard to keep the forest in mind when we're like, examining individual leaves on each of these trees but yeah that's that's sort of the the approach to um what he's doing here right okay so yeah we'll end here today um we'll pick up from page uh what are we at 82 yeah 82 next time 
so yeah, thanks everyone for coming out and thanks for your uh, contributions um, and hope to see you next time.